This is Real Estate Rookie episode 308. And I just want to define really quickly cash on cash return because we're talking about this as a metric, but for those that aren't familiar with that metric, cash on cash return is a fraction. And the top of your fraction, you have profit for the year, right? How much profit did you generate over a 12 month time frame? And in the bottom in your denominator, you have your cash invested to acquire that property. So for us on the short-term rental side, that's your down payment closing costs. And we typically try and roll like any startup costs into that as well. Um, but typically it's your down payment and your closing costs. And then that top number is your profit. My name is Ashley Kerr and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And today we are back with a Rookie Reply episode. And uh, like, as always, I love getting into the nitty gritty of these most episodes on Wednesdays, you guys to hear from amazing guests. On Saturdays, you get to hear me and Ashley blab for, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes about all things real estate investing. Uh, but we talk about a, a wide range of topics today. We talk about how to submit offers as a rookie and when is too low? Like when is an, what is an offer too low and how do you kind of navigate those situations? Uh, which is a very important conversation. We talk about cash flow requirements. Like how do I know what I should be looking for as a new investor in terms of what kind of cash on cash return makes sense? And we also define what cash on cash return means for, for our rookies that aren't familiar with that phrase. Then we touch on appraisals and how to get an appraisal done for your property and what are some of the steps you should take uh, and really think about before you go and order your own appraisal. And then we talk about seller financing and how to do the math on seller financing. And we give you guys a couple tips and tricks to consider when discussing seller financing. I want to give a social media shout out today to at the finance diary. So I came across Stephanie's account by using the hashtag real estate rookie. If you guys are not already uh, following Tony and I on Instagram, you can follow me at wealth from rentals and Tony at Tony J Robinson. Uh, we've been going through and selecting somebody uh, to give a shout out to. So if you want a shout out, make sure you're following us and using the real estate rookie hashtag. So uh, Stephanie has been sharing about her personal finances and um, she's also sharing uh, a rehab property that she recently did that's going to be a rental. So she shared some before and after pictures that caught my eye and she talked about how she wanted to make the property into a clean, safe, dry and structurally sound um, property for somebody to rent out from her. So big shout out to Stephanie. All right. And before we jump in, I just want to give a shout out to someone about the username of we are note. Uh, this person left to say five star review on Apple Podcasts, And the title says you're saturating my sponge. Uh, this person says I'm new. Uh, I'm the new real estate investor. Haven't secured my first deal yet, but hopefully will this year. And I've learned so much from your podcast. The information is concise and relevant and easy to listen to and understand. Thank you so much and keep up the great work. So for all of our rookies that are listening uh, from the bottom of both mine and Ashley's hearts, if you can take just a moment wherever you're listening, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, leave a review, leave a comment, let folks know what you think about the podcast. The more reviews and comments and, and shares that we get, the more folks we're able to reach. And the more folks we're able to reach, the more we can inspire with the message uh, that we have to share here at the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, which is what we're all about. So please take a few minutes, make that happen, and uh, you know, lighten up someone's day with some, some good real estate investing tips. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. 
That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent. T-O, retirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. If you're in the landlord game, you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where Rent Ready steps in. Now, Rent Ready's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. So say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with Rent Ready. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. Now, if you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for just one dollar. You can't beat that. So visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP like Bigger Pockets Investor to get six months of Rent Ready for one dollar eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED lights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Okay, Tony, let's get to our first question. Today's question is submitted by Vantage Surfboards. Uh, Love that name. Surfing boards. Please uh, sponsor me. <laughs> but the question is, when submitting an offer on an investment property, how low of an offer do you generally ask for? For example, if a home was selling for $275,000, what price would be too low of an offer that it would be a waste of time? Okay, so the first thing that I see here is he says or she says, we're just going to say he for now, whoever Vantage Surfboards is, is selling the home for $275,000. So this must be the asking price of it. And I think it's very important to differentiate that because just because a property is listed for a certain amount doesn't mean that that's what it's going to sell for in a sense. And I'm sure this person understands that, but I think getting into that mindset of just because a price or a property is listed at a certain price doesn't mean that's what you have to pay or even close to pay to that. Uh, Tony gave us an example a couple months ago. Of, it was that property where you kept going back and forth over months and you got it for what, like $100,000 less? Or what was that amount? It was originally listed for almost $400,000. We closed on it for two ninety three. Uh, and then we ended up making like $40,000 on the flip because we got it the price that made sense for us. So right there, what Tony just said is the key what price makes sense for you. And so I guess it depends on like how much you actually want to profit on you. So where I would kind of start with that as to like, 
okay, yeah, you could go on this $275,000 property and you could offer a hundred thousand. And maybe that means you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars on flipping it. And, but also you want to be competitive because there could be somebody else putting in an offer that's higher than that. And so you want to find that, that sweet spot as to a number that makes sense for you as in what is going to be worth your time to acquire this property, to rehab this property, and then to sell this property again. So Tony just said that for him, it was a great deal. He made $40,000. Okay. So that $40,000, Tony explained to us why that was a great deal. Why $40,000 and made you come to that price point. Yeah. I mean, we just have like a minimum number on our flips that we want to profit. And we usually don't touch anything if it doesn't at least get around that number. So we did our analysis. We said, how much do we think we're going to spend on the rehab? What are the ARVs that we're looking at? Um, and we use that to kind of back into, okay, what is the maximum allowable offer that we have on this specific property? And I knew what the number was. Um, and it was actually 300. So we got it for a little bit lower than what we wanted. Um, but through our negotiation, we were able to get it down. But basically, I saw what it was listed for, right? It was like almost $400,000. I submitted my offer at like 305 or whatever it was. They said no. Uh, it was still listed a few months later. Uh, they came back to us after it had been sitting stale and said, Hey, would you take it for 350? We said, No, again, our offer is 300. Uh, they came back again and said, Would you do it for 315? We said, No, we'll do it for 300. Uh, and then eventually they, they end up accepting that offer. So uh, I, I think that we're, we're at a time in the market cycle where a lot of buyers have kind of dried up. You know, it is a bit more of a, a buyer's market right now in a, in a lot of different places. So I don't think that there is quote unquote uh, an offer that would be too low. Right. It's like, okay, what are, what is the offer that my analysis says makes the most sense? And that's kind of where I, where I, where I put my flag in the ground, my stake in the ground and say, this is the, this is the highest number that I can go with. Yeah. So there is no offer that is too low. Like, yes, you may insult the sellers, but there are people out there. They're going to tell you that it, I got the best deal because I submitted that low offer where sometimes if I submit an offer and it's accepted right away, my initial reaction is, I offered oh, too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I had this property that was listed at, um, it was a pocket listing actually. It hadn't even gone on the MLS yet. And then an agent brought it to me and said, you know, they're going to take an, if they get an offer before it gets listed, they're, they're probably going to take it. And so they were going to list it for 159,000. I offered 150 and they took it right away. And like, even though that was $9,000 and it made my numbers work, like $9,000 less than what they were asking. And it made my numbers work. I still had that reaction of like, oh, I offered too much because they accepted it right away and didn't counter. I also think actually like so many new investors, they get hung up on this idea of like, uh, I don't want to insult the seller. But say, say you even came with an offer that was so incredibly low that the seller didn't even bother to respond to you. If I don't think there was a number that's so low that if you came back the next day with a full price offer, they would say no to you. Right. So like, say that I offered them a dollar today, say, Hey, I want to buy your property for $1 and they would laugh. They would, wouldn't even entertain that. But if I came back the next day at full price, they would entertain it because that's the number that they're looking for. So I, I don't think for the vast majority of sellers that you can come with a number that's so low that they would bar you or, or ban you from ever making another offer on that property again. So I think we just need to let go of that fear of insulting the seller and just know it's, it's a numbers game and, and they, and they know that. And I think an appropriate way to follow up with that as, you know, putting in the offer, they, they have made it clear that they're insulted by it or whatever 
is just kindly let them know like, okay, if you ever want to reconsider or, you know, maybe there's some negotiation here, like please contact and reach out to us. We're very interested. I have an example where a property I looked at, I put in a very low offer compared to what they're asking and they would, they didn't counter it. And they're like, no, we're not even going to entertain that offer. And I just was like, okay, whatever. And I didn't follow up. I didn't do anything with the property. You know, it sat for sale for a little bit longer. I didn't follow up again where I should have. And it ended up selling less than what my offer was. (laughs) And I was like kicking myself like, oh my gosh, like why didn't I like keep, you know, in touch? And it was on the MLS. So I could have just had my real estate agent do it. Like, hey, just ask the seller's realtor. Like, hey, you know, do you think there's room for them to, come down to this offer now it's been sitting for you know 100 days or whatever it was and yeah so my mistake there so vantage surfboards or whatever your real name is um don't don't be afraid do your do your analysis use the bigger pockets calculators understand what your maximum allowable offer is and whatever that is put that number in like Ashley said earlier the the 275 that's just their listing price and a listing price isn't always a good representation of what a property is actually worth and you'll have agents that'll attest to the two. Sometimes you have agents who put up a list price that they don't even feel comfortable at, but because the seller was adamant about, I want this number, even if it's not rooted in, in reality, that the agent's still going to list it at that number. So the listing price, when I'm analyzing a deal, I don't even account for that. I don't, I don't have anywhere on my analysis where I say, what is the listing price? All I put is, what am I offering? And that's how I analyze my deals. And that's why I also love to meet with the seller's agent at a property. If it is an on-market deal is seeing if there's a chance to get the seller's agent there because they've talked directly to the seller so they can answer some questions for you that my agent has no idea. They've never seen this house before. They've never talked to the seller before where I can kind of pick the brain as to like, how much wiggle room is actually here as to, you know, why are they selling? And you can find out some information as to, you know, or, you know, one way to even, you know, put into your contract some kind of, you know, negotiating technique as to like, they don't want to, you know, their mother passed away. They don't want to clear out the property. So like maybe if you put into your offer, they can leave everything and you'll dispose of it for them. Like that might be something to just them be like, yep, you know what? Your offer is last, but we don't want the headache of clearing it out. We'll take that. And I've had that happen to me before or saying that the tenants can stay and I will take care of, you know, re-signing their lease or get, getting them out of the units, whatever that is. They don't have to worry about that where maybe other offers were like, no, we want the place vacant. And, um, and especially if someone's going to house hack that property, they would definitely need one unit vacant where if you're an investor, you can kind of deal with the the tenants that are in place. Okay, our next question is not from Vantage Surfboards, but from Elizabeth Jane. Um, Elizabeth said, do you have a minimum cash flow requirement to meet on a single family home before putting in an offer? If so, what is your requirement? Thanks. So Tony, you kind of just talked about this in your last question that for your flips, you have a minimum amount that you want to target uh, for flips. And what about short-term rentals? Do you have a minimum amount of cash that you're looking for? I do. And before I give my number, I just want to say everyone's number is going to be different because everyone's motivation for investing in real estate is different. Like I know some investors, like some, like I have, I have a student in my program and he's a, a CFO, super high income earning guy. 
when he's buying his short-term rentals, he's not necessarily worried about uh, getting a solid cash on cash return. His biggest concern is I want to offset my income as a CFO for this company. Right. And I have other students who are like, Hey, I want to, you know, like you guys met Olivia a few episodes ago. Olivia's goal was I want cash flow. I want to generate that quickly. So I think a lot of it comes down to what's your, your personal goals. And if the goal is, you know, tax benefit, you're going to have a, maybe a lower cash on cash return and you want more expensive properties and markets where you can get better tax benefit. If you want appreciation, you know, maybe you're, you're looking at markets where you can get that good year over year growth. And if you want cash flow, then that's what you're focused on. Um, so I think everyone's goal is going to be a little bit different. Us personally, we typically don't even offer on a deal if it's not at least a 30% cash on cash return. Uh, that's kind of like the, the floor in our business. I can say last year our, our worst deal was a forty percent cash on cash return, so we're still kind of above that that threshold. But for us, it's thirty percent on the uh, the short term rentals that we buy. What about for you guys in your business? Yeah, and I think of that as something we need to make clear as to if someone says I have a hundred dollars cash flow per door, and someone else says, "I well, I have three hundred. Okay, you can't go and look. Oh, well, that person has three hundred has a better deal. Because you have to look at how the property was purchased and how it is financed. So, you know, that person could have put in, you know, a $20,000 down payment and they could have it amortized over 40 years, <laughs> their loan, where their mortgage payment is a lot smaller. So they have, you know, more cash flow where the other person could have done a burr where they pulled all of their money out. And they have none. So I think what Tony's talking about is the cash on cash return is a way get better metric to compare apples to apples when looking at properties than actual cash flow, unless the properties are being purchased the same exact way. So if you're looking at three different deals and you know, like you're, you would have to buy each deal the same way, then yeah, you can look at the cash flow that way. But as to comparing, um, especially to other people, I think the cash on cash return is a way better metric uh, for long-term rentals. I'm looking at at least 15% cash on cash return for a long-term rental. And I just want to define really quickly cash on cash return because we're talking about this as a metric, but for those that aren't familiar with that metric, cash on cash return is a fraction. And the top of your fraction, you have profit for the year, right? How much profit did you generate over a 12-month time frame? And in the bottom, in your denominator, you have your cash invested to acquire that property. So for us on the short-term rental side, that's your down payment closing costs. And we typically try and roll like any startup costs into that as well. Um, but typically, it's your down payment and your closing costs. And then that top number is your profit. So say that you, in, you invested $10 into a property. And over the course of that year, you got back $1 that'd be a 10% cash on cash return. That number holds true. If I invested uh, $100 and got back 10, or if I got back $1,000 and got back 100, if I invested a million dollars and got back 100,000, like that would be a 10% cash on cash return. So as you're kind of analyzing these deals and, and thinking about it, make sure you're setting up your, your framework and that, that fraction the right way. Cash investing on the bottom, profit for the year up top. All right, so our next question here, uh, this one comes from... Osahan Abi and Osahan, I hope I got your, your name right there. But uh, Osahan says, is it a good idea to use a line of credit as a down payment for an investment property and then use the cash flow to pay back the line of credit? If not, please explain why. Uh, I'll, I'll give my quick take on this first because I actually haven't used. Uh, actually, I did use a line of credit once to buy buy a property. But yeah, so I'll, I'll give my take and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Um, I typically only like to use lines of credit if it's a short term 
source of funding. Uh, I, I personally wouldn't want to tie up my line of credit into something where it's like a, a down payment on a house that I'm going to be holding for 30 years. Uh, but if I'm doing it for a burr or a flip, uh, I feel like in those senses, I know I'm going to be out in a few months and I can pay back that line of credit relatively quickly. Those are the situations where I typically like to to use short-term debt, uh, like a line of credit. What about you, Ash? How does, how does your use of lines of credits vary from that? Yes. I've never used one as a down payment for an investment property. I have used it to pay for a property in full to partially fund it where I'm going to go and refinance it. Like maybe I'm using part of my own cash and then part of the line of credit um, or I'm using the line of credit to fund the rehab. But as far as me going and getting a bank loan and purchasing a property where the the down payment of that 20% or whatever amount it, it is, is coming from a line of credit. So now I've purchased this property. I have my mortgage and I also now have that line of credit payment. So here's where I would say, go for it. If your estate, let's use a rental property, for example, long-term rental property. If your rent can sustain and can cover the payment on your line of credit. But remember, usually, typically, a line of credit payment is interest only. So you want to to make sure that you're paying back some of that, uh, you know, principal payment of that money that you borrowed too. So factor that in as to that you're making a payment back. And sometimes a bank will actually take your line of credit and roll it into like a 15 year term you know, loan for you if you need to and actually amortize it for you. But, um, and you can kind of lock in an interest rate. My, my one business partner did that on his house. He, you know, had a line of credit and then actually rolled it over into um, a, a loan that was amortized over 15 years and he could lock in that interest rate instead of having a variable interest rate. So if you, if your cash flow can support having those two payments and your other expenses and you're still cash flowing or breaking even, or, you know, depending on what your strategy and your goals are, uh, then I say, yes, go ahead and go for it. The next thing is if you are, um, going to go and refinance. So with the Burr strategy is typically recommended to buy with some kind of short term, funding. Because if you go with a bank financing to purchase property, you go and do rehab, and then you go and refinance with the bank again, you're paying closing costs twice. But if the numbers work and that's your only way to get into a property, then go ahead and do it. So then when you go and refinance, you would pay back your, your first lien, that mortgage on it, and then you would go and you would pay back your line of credit on the property. And then, you know, make sure that you have enough to pay those two off. Um, so I think if you can cover the line of credit payment with your cash flow, or if you can go and refinance within a short period of time, which I would say would be 12 to 18 months at the most, um, for doing the, the refinance process. But, um, it'd really just be like, how long can you carry on that payment? And, if it makes sense to you that like you want to pay that out of pocket, factor that into your numbers still like that's still affecting your finances. If you're saying, well, you know what? I actually have a great W2 job. Like I just haven't saved and I want to buy now instead of saving for the next six months. And so I'm just going to pull off my line of credit. Well, if you can take your cash and you can throw, throw, throw at that line of credit, that might 
work for you then too, over the next six months and you can pay it off that way. And you just want to take action now. Maybe you have the perfect deal that has come up, but make sure you have a plan in place to pay back that line of credit. Because if you do use it for another property, say that line of credit is on your primary residence. And one day you decide you want to sell your primary residence. Hopefully you're, you're not maxed out when you're not 95% leveraged on your, your residence. And now you can't sell it because you still have that line of credit. That's not not paid off and then your primary mortgage too. So those are just some things to think about. I would say definitely don't say like no to using your line of credit, but think about how, what your exit strategy is to pay off your line of credit or to pay for those monthly payments. eBay motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Rookies, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. Nope, they've now rolled out proof of income verification. So let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets, but if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for only $1. How great of a deal is that? So visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor to get six months of rent ready for only $1. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal Do Not Call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Something else to consider too, and uh, this is true for my line of credit. Uh, I, I assume it's true for all, but your your rate is also variable. Uh, and the one line of credit that I have, it was uh, it was through my E-Trade account, and I was able to like pledge my stocks as collateral for this line of credit. And when I first started using that line of credit, my interest rate was like, a, like ridiculously low. Like I, I think it was like less than a percent when I started. Tony, you have to talk about that because that is one of the best ways to get a line of credit. Can you talk about that? Is your stocks as collateral? Yeah. Let me expand on that. So, uh, 
if you have a, a brokerage account with an E-Trade or Fidelity, I think all the, the big uh, brokerages offer this service. But if you have uh, stocks, you can actually pledge your stocks as collateral and uh, your brokerage will give you a line of credit. So basically a loan that you can use to go out and do whatever you want with. Uh, so for me, I, I had a decent amount of stocks that I, I got them for my job. I think you have to have at least a hundred thousand though. I think there is like a minimum. I don't know exactly what it is. I think it, I do think it varies from like broker to broker oh, because really? I, oh. I think it, I think it E-Trade, I think it might've been like 30,000 bucks or something like that was all you needed. Um, so it varies from broker to broker. But uh, but basically, it works just like a traditional line of credit. So you you move your stocks out of like your general account into your line of credit account. They then say, here's how much stock you have. Here much here's how much line of credit we're willing to give you. Um, and again, just like a usual line of credit, you only get billed if you draw against that line. Um, now on the flip side, uh, if you're if they they want you to maintain a certain like amount of equity. So say you have a hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, stocks, maybe they'll they'll only give you sixty percent of that. So they'll give you sixty thousand dollars in a line of credit. And say that the market shifts and your hundred thousand dollars drops down to fifty five. Now you have to come out of pocket immediately to pay that five thousand dollar difference to keep your line of credit uh, kind of above board. So there is some risk uh, I think associated with uh, with a, a line of credit in that sense. But if you have a big enough amount and you're you're keeping a really healthy margin in your equity even as the market kind of ebbs and flows you should be able to you know move forward without having to come out of pocket for it but like i said it was a, a really really low cost way for me to uh, purchase one of our properties and uh but now rates have gone up quite a bit and that was the the point i was getting at is that with these lines of credit uh they're not fixed it's not a fixed rate like you get with a traditional home mortgage. Like these are going to go up and down as the market shifts. And what we saw over the last couple of years is interest rates have gone up tremendously. And that same thing happens on these lines of credit. So you could go one month from paying sub 1% um, to, you know, four, five, six, whatever that percentage is that that brokerage uh, fills is fair. So just something else to consider because maybe, like you said, Ashley, if you, if your rent covers the, the payment at this super low interest rate and then rates double or triple over the next couple of months, now you have to make sure that you're still able to, to kind of cover that, that difference as well. Uh, for that, what did your interest rate go to? Do you know what it is right now? I got to check. Um, I, I don't really use that line of credit as much anymore, but I I mean, it's, it's probably like 8% or something like that. I don't know. Something in, a lot higher than what it was. It was literally below 1% when I first opened it up. It was yeah, crazy. crazy. It was like free money. Mine is two duplexes as collateral, one of mine. And I know that one offhand has gone from 5.75, I think it was starting out maybe two and a half years ago. And now it's at um, 9.25. And then like, I feel, I feel like within the last year, every like two months I've gotten a letter, Hey, your rate is going up and it's slowly <laughs> done the increase. Just creeping increase. up. Yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah. It, it is something. And again, I, I think that's why there's a benefit of trying to keep that debt uh, used in the short run. That way, you know, you can kind of anticipate or I guess adapt to some of those interest rate changes a little bit easier. Because what does that translate to? Your monthly payment increases. So like, think about you going from a 1% interest rate to 9% as to what a difference that is in a monthly payment. It's crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do the math on that real quick. So entertain everyone while I I Google this real quick. (laughs) All right. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll I'll just give my, my last little thought here. So I think, uh, if you are in a position where that's the only course of action that you have, and, and you've got a 
crazy good deal in front of you, it might be worth it to pull the trigger. But like Ashley said, I think you want to make sure you have some reserves set aside to deal with some of these fluctuations. Because the last thing you want is to be in a position where you can't pay on that line of credit. And now there's issues with, uh, you know, it causes this domino effect of issues in your life. So um, hopefully I was able to entertain you long enough for Ashley to do, to, to do that math. I'm ready. Okay. So <laughs> say you pull $50,000 off a line of credit and you're going to use it as your down payment. And say at the time your interest rate was 4%. Okay. So your monthly payment would be $166. Okay. Say that it jumped to 9%, which it's very common right now. That's what it is. Your, your, now, your payment now is $375. So think about if you were like $167, I can, I can cover that. And now it's $375. That's a car payment for, for a lot of people. That's you know, that's um a big a big jump. So, you know, even now, like think if interest rates keep going up. So say they're at nine percent right now and at three seventy-five and they go up to twelve percent, that's five hundred dollars a month if it continues to increase. So yeah, I th- that's a great point as to the variable because your payment will change and will it still be affordable to you. All right. Well, I guess let's go on to our, our next question here. Question number four. This one comes from Damon Hutchinson. And uh, Damon says, this might be a dumb question, but how would I go about getting my house appraised? First, Damon at the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, there were no dumb questions. Uh, we are here to answer the questions that you feel like you can't get answered anywhere else. But um, so first, let's just talk actually about like what an appraisal is. Like, What is the purpose of, of an appraisal in real estate? So when a bank gives you a loan for uh, for a home purchase, when they give you a mortgage, banks want to make sure that they're covering their own butts and that they're not giving you a loan that's in excess of what that house is actually worth. And typically, they won't even give you the full 100% of what the home is worth. They only want to go up to maybe 70 or 80% of what that home is worth. So let's say that you want to go out and buy a house, and I'm just going to use round numbers here, but say you want to go out and buy a house for $100,000. Most banks will say, okay, this house you think is worth $100,000. We will now give you a loan for up to 80% of that. So we'll give you a loan for $80,000. You come up for the other uh, $20,000, right? So I think most of us understand that's how, how mortgages work. But the next step is, and you see a lot of deals fall apart when this step happens, is that banks want to make sure that whatever you're agreeing to purchase that property for is what it's actually worth. So they send out an appraiser. An appraiser is someone whose entire job is to give their opinion of value on whatever piece of real estate you're buying. And there's different ways to appraise a property. Uh, but, but the most common approaches you see, especially in the single family space, is they use the, the comp-based approach. They look for comparable sales. So what they'll do is they'll say, hey, your property on 123 Main Street, we're going to look at uh, 122 Main Street, 124 Main Street, 125 Main Street, 126 Main Street, and we're going to try and find properties that are similar in size and age and functionality to your home. And we want to find ones that have sold recently. And they use all of those local homes to uh, come up with an opinion of value for your property. And then once they kind of put all that together, they say, okay, your house is worth $100,000. And that happens many times where your appraised value is like spot on with your purchase price. What, what can happen though, is that sometimes your appraisal can come in low. 
So again, remember our example, you're under contract for $100,000. The bank has already agreed to give you a loan at 80% of what that home is worth. But say that your appraisal comes back instead of it being $100,000. What if the bank says, hey, your home is actually only worth, or the appraiser says your home is actually only worth uh, $75,000. So now the bank is saying, hey, we're not going to give you 80% of 100, we're going to give you 80% of 75. And 80% of 75 is only $60,000. So that means now you need to cover the gap between the $60,000 loan the bank is giving you and the $100,000 you've agreed to purchase this property for. It happens all the time in the world of real estate investing. Um, so super long explanation, but that's what an appraisal is. To actually get an appraisal, it's pretty simple, Damon. If you're buying a house, your lender is probably going to order it for you. You typically don't have to do anything. If you by yourself would just like to get your home appraised, which you can do, just find a local appraisal company and call them up and say, hey, I'd like to get my house appraised. Can you come take a look at it? Um, so different ways to do it. Yeah. Or if you're getting a line of credit or you know any kind of financing on it, the bank will usually take care of doing the appraisal for you. My question would be as to if you're not going that route as to why you would want to get an appraisal done. Is it just out of curiosity how much your house is worth? Because you can be spending, you know, 300 to $500 on the appraisal to be done. Um, you know, and that's a, a couple hundred dollars to, well, more than a couple hundred to uh, cure your curiosity, I guess. But um, if you go, but if you're maybe part of the reason is you want to see if there's any equity in your house to go ahead and go to the bank, I would go to the bank first. And I would say that like, like this is what I, I would want to do. And sometimes the bank will do like a an in-house appraisal for you first. So they'll kind of look at it and say like, okay, you know what? We do think that there is some equity here. We could do a line of credit and you can kind of ask for, you know, almost like their opinion on that before going further. And then of course, making sure that you're approved for the loan too, before you go through and pay for the appraisal and the bank will charge you for the appraisal for your, if it's a, a mortgage, but a couple, I've been to a couple banks where if it is your primary residence and you're getting a line of credit, they will not charge you any closing costs. So kind of watch out for that too. Um, there's also the loans where you can get the closing costs wrapped in to the mortgage where you're not paying them out of pocket, where they take the appraisal and just add it kind of to your loan balance. Um, so you're just you're, you're still paying it. You're just paying it over time or they increase the interest rate or they increase the points you're paying up front different, different strategies like that. Either way, they're making their money <laughs> and you're paying it somehow. <laughs> I think the only thing I'd add to the appraisal piece is um, also understand, and this is for all of you that are listening to that, an appraisal is, is more art than science. And you could have two different appraisers go to the same exact property and come up with two different opinions of value. And it's happened to me multiple times throughout my investing career. I'm sure it's happened to Ashley as well, because there's not a, a hard and fast rule that's just like this nationally accepted way to appraise a home. Every appraiser kind of has their own flavor that they put to it um, and their own perception of the value of a home. And uh, I, I recently ran into an issue when appraisal came back low and I talked to my lender, he and I are good friends, and he kind of educated me on, on how things work in the world of appraising. And what he said was that during 2008 and the, the big meltdown, it was uh, there were a lot of appraisers who were inflating property values in order to get loans approved uh, for folks that probably shouldn't 
had no business getting approved for those loans. So there were some uh, appraisers who were personally held liable when some of these loans went bad, right? The government was doing their thing and trying to hold people accountable. And there were some appraisers that got caught in the crossfires. So ever since the 2008 meltdown, you've seen appraisers be a little bit more conservative in their opinions of value, especially in a shifting market like we're in right now. So like if you look at parts of California, you know, different counties are down 5, 10, 12, 15% year over year. And as an, an appraiser in that type of environment, if you want to really cover your own bases, you're probably going to be a little bit more conservative in what you think a property is worth if you see the trend going down like this. Um, so just insight for you guys as you're working through that. But if you ever have an appraisal that comes back low and you find yourself in that position, don't be afraid to challenge it, right? See if you can find comps of your own that support a higher opinion of value. See if you can find holes in the logic that the appraiser used to come up with your opinion of value. Like Ash, I know you talked about like the whole land piece and how larger parcels are selling at a fraction more than smaller parcels. So just look for opportunities to really point out where you feel the appraiser might've missed something. And that's another reason if you are thinking of getting an appraisal to get um, you know, some kind of bank financing on your property, they will, the bank will not accept the appraisal you go out and get, even if it is from, you know, a licensed appraiser, they will do their, get their own appraisal order. So even if you just got one done, the bank most likely will not accept it and they'll order a new one anyways to kind of go through their whole process and won't accept the one you had just gotten done. I think this might be a national thing, but uh, I'm pretty sure lenders actually can't choose the exact appraiser that goes out and does it. Um, and again, that, that's like a 2008 uh, reform thing, but basically lenders have like a panel of appraisers. They submit it and then kind of like random choosing. I don't know how it happens, but one of those appraisers gets sent out because I think what was happening before um, was that, you know, lenders and appraisers were buddy buddies and lenders would be like, Hey, you know, I need you to get this, this property to be at this value. And, you know, I'll kick you a little something here to, to make it happen. So uh, the government's trying to Eliminate that from happening. So typically, I don't even think you can choose who your appraiser is if you're doing it for a loan. Yeah. On the commercial side, I know for sure it's definitely done like that where it's kind of put out to three different um, appraisers. And like sometimes it will be like whichever appraiser can get it done the soonest. Um, okay. So our next question is from Sarah Lucas. Can someone help me understand the math for seller financing? Say you are offering $200,000 on a house, you're going to put 5% down as the down payment and the seller is going to finance the rest. So 200,000, 5% down, that'd be $10,000 as your down payment and you're going to seller finance 190,000, meaning the seller is going to be the bank for you. You are not going to have to pay them a lump sum. The bank is not gonna to have to pay them a lump sum like if you went and got a traditional mortgage you are going to pay them monthly payments instead of a bank. So the questions here are, how long do you suggest the amortization for? What would be my monthly payment? How much would the seller be making? And I'd like to show the seller how much they'll be making and why it would be beneficial to them, which I 100% do every single time I ask for seller financing is print out that amortization schedule. So I actually pulled this up uh, real quick. So I just Google amortization schedule <laughs> calculator and I, I usually end up clicking on the bankrate.com one. And so I, I have it pulled up here and I put in the loan amount, 190,000 and I put in the interest rate for five years. And then for the first loan term, I put in a 15 year term. 
and it shows that my monthly payment would be $1,503. It also shows you other information as to when your payoff date would be, the total cost of the loan as to like, even though you're buying it for, you're doing the loan for 190,000 with interest over those 15 years, you'd end up paying 270,000. Um, so as to far as the question as to, you know, what would my, or what, how would I be making money and how much money would the seller be making? So I like to highlight and show the seller the total interest paid to them. So in this case, if it's over 15 years and you're going to pay to them the whole 15 years, it'd be $80,451 additional they are making. So if we go ahead and change the loan term to say 30 years, then your payment is 1,020. So remember the other payment was 1,500. So this is about $500 less, but the total interest now paid to the seller is $177,186 over those 30 years. So the, the time has doubled. So I think just go to this, if you go to this calculator report, and you plug it in and just play with it and then make sure, I thought there was a question on this, but I don't think there is in there as to, or yeah, how long do you suggest the amortization for? This is where you'll want to see what works for your numbers. So say you're going, you can rent the property out for $1,600 a month. So maybe that 15 year, $1,500 mortgage payment isn't going to work for you because then you only have a hundred dollars left to pay your property taxes, your insurance, and all other expenses before your cash flow negative. Um, so that you can go ahead and play with the the loan term and figure out which makes sense for your numbers, where are you still going to cash flow on the property? And that's where you're going to then present it to the 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 seller. And then there may be some negotiating from there that you'll have to do. But I think the biggest thing is to figure out what they want out of this. Like, why are they saying they want seller financing? And sometimes it, it may be because they want that that mailbox money. They want that monthly income coming in that steady check, especially if they've had rentals and they're used to that. And now they're selling the rentals and they've always budgeted off of, you know, what guaranteed income they're getting every single month. Um, and so like, okay, you know what? I can still hit that. You want, you know, a thousand dollars a month. How about we do it the 15 year term, but we decrease the interest rate or something like that. And then that way I can get you right to the 1500. So now you're paying them less interest, but they're still getting that monthly amount that they want. So really getting creative and playing around with the numbers will be very beneficial to you. You have to make sure it makes sense for you first though, before you actually submit an offer to them saying, yeah, I'll do, you know, a 10% interest in a balloon payment in two years and amortize it over 15 years. And then, you know, you actually run the numbers and no, it, it doesn't work for you. You can't, the, the property can't support that. Yeah. I think the only thing I'd add, and you touched on this a little bit at the end there, Ash, but just uh, differentiating or, or understanding the differences between your term and your amortization period. So uh, your amortization is over how many years are you technically stretching out the schedule of uh, the interest payments and the principal payments. Your term is when is that loan due in full? So what you could say is, hey, I want an amortization period of 30 years. So that means I'm going to stretch out the payment 
uh, over a time frame of 30 years. So if I made payments until the very end, at the end of 30 years, it will be paid in full. However, you can set your term to be something shorter than your amortization period and say you want to set it to 10 years. So that means you pay as if you were going to pay it off for 30 years, but then at year 10, instead of you making another payment like you normally would, you'd have to pay the loan in full. And typically the way you get around that is, I mean, if you have the cash saved up, then pay them out in cash. But typically you get around that balloon payment uh, by refinancing the property. So just something to consider, uh, Sarah, is that uh, as you're putting this together, you can have the amortization be something exceptionally long, you know, three decades, and then have your your term be something shorter to give that seller peace of mind. You know, they're not going to have to be sitting around for 30 years to get their money back. Well, thank you guys so much for submitting this week's questions. If you guys would like to submit a question, you can go to biggerpockets.com slash reply and post your question in there, or you can also leave it in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group, or you can send Tony or I a DM and we will add it to the list. Thank you guys so much. I'm Ashley at Wealthful Rentals and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. And we will be back on Wednesday with a guest. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.